are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Adderley. My podcast where I discuss writing. Only today we're not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just going to talk to you today, if that's okay. I thought about doing a Batman episode. And I was going to talk about Batman as a character from my perspective and my experience as a fan. And read portions of... The Dark Knight Returns and all that. I've been threatening to do that for years. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about various topics. Because I have a lot on my mind. And I've been saying, you know, every year I want to do something different with the podcast. So back in 2021, I focused more on short form writing like David Sedaris and short stories, things like that. In 2022, I did a lot of the stuff that ended up on my oral exam, and I talked about Two and a Half Men. I did seven episodes on Invisible Man. So I I did a lot of different stuff last year, and this year I'm trying to give us some variety as well. We're coming up on episode 200 of the podcast shortly, and this year I've been really consistent about only putting out one episode a week. Last year, I put out more content on this podcast than not only myself, than according to Spotify, most other people on the platform. So I have cut back a little bit in terms of what I'm putting out on here. But I'm just trying to not only maintain consistency, but just, again, variety. And I have other things to do. My wife and I had... A conversation. It was kind of an argument, but it was about an hour long. And we talked about my career. And the thing is, is that I had set everything in motion to become a college instructor because I worked for years and went to grad school. And it was with the intent of when I finished grad school, getting a teaching job and looking into teaching full-time, etc. And in March of this year, I resigned from my first teaching position. And I talked about that at length on a previous episode, I'm sure, but I also wrote about it on my Substack. I also talked about it with Chris on a previous episode when he was on the podcast. But I am currently taking a course and I'm not going to, I have to maintain some privacy from the public. So I'm taking a course and it's a six month course. It's self-paced. I can finish it as quick as I want to, or take as long as I want to. As long as I finish it by November, I kind of wish they gave me a year because I hate doing it. And, you know, I told my wife this, and she, I thought she knew this when I went into this, that this was not my intent of starting a career doing this thing that is related to my current career, where I would be able to find more jobs, get better pay. The, the, the other benefit of this is that this certification is also beneficial to my current career path, regardless of whether or not I transition. And my wife and I are polar opposites in many ways. I'm very practical, and she's not. And we balance each other out most of the time. And my thing is, I know going into this that it's not going to be my passion. But the thing is is that if I followed my passion in life, I would be broke. Because my passions in life are writing and music. And I have a weekly podcast where I talk about either writing and music, and I do it to a a sizable, a a small sizable audience, you know, a, a dedicated audience, but I'm not making money off the podcast either. I've been well aware of where my creativity sits in the grand scheme of things, and it's important to me. Very much so, but it's not important to most people. It's not even important to people who pretend to care a lot of the time, as as evidenced by 
uh, negative, negative reviews that I get from other indie authors on things that I've written. I was very passionate about teaching, though. I loved being in the classroom. And so it would be nice if I could make that my career, but as I've said before, and I've tried to illustrate to other people who don't seem to understand, now is a terrible time to get into teaching. And it's especially a terrible time to get into it as an English instructor at the college level. So I'm just doing something that will bring in more money. And, you know, it's not about being passionate about it. It's about being competent at it. In fact, I'm more competent at my current job than most people. But aside from that, it's just the practical thing to do. And not everyone has the opportunity to make this kind of shift. People get stuck and they don't have a plan B. And I have the option of a plan B and I'm taking it. All that being said, I've been avoiding it like crazy. And, you know, Friday I had another anxiety attack. I've had two this year. And it's it's different because I had panic attacks years ago, but that was related to something that triggered it. I was depressed a lot, but these anxiety attacks are much different and what is triggering them is different. Um, I'm not depressed. I'm mostly just anxious, anxious about the future, anxious about my health, just all sorts of things. And really this course that I'm taking is one of the straws that's breaking the camel's back when it comes to my anxiety. But again, I, here's the thing. I was able to work full time and go to grad school and I made A's, A's in grad school. I'm not being graded in this course, but I am expected to finish it by the time the course ends in November. And it's stuff for the most part, that I struggled with in high school. So I excel at, at writing, analysis, things like that. But when it comes to science, I don't do so well. But what's ironic is that I was never fantastic at math, and yet math is a part of my current job, and I'm great at it. Why? Because it's real numbers and not silly made-up math problems. And today was the last day that I will be playing the new Zelda Tears of the Kingdom game, which I've been doing since early June. A lot. Much to my wife's chagrin. Because, for one thing, it's great escapism, and it was a fun-ass game. Uh, And if you're wondering, did I complete the game? No, because I did 92 out of the 156 shrines... So I've done most of the shrines, and the only reason to really do the shrines is to get more hearts, and I have about 20 hearts. I've completed my stanima, so I've maxed out the stanima that I am able to achieve. And I've done most of the quests. I've completed the main quest aside from fighting the final boss, Ganondorf. I didn't fight Ganondorf in... Uh, Breath of the Wild either because the thing is is that there's no reward for doing so. Someone out there might disagree, but there's one thing that I've noticed with these Zelda games is that you're not getting much in return for the work that you're putting in. Whereas with the shrines, you you absolutely do, but you can only do that so much. With the temples, you absolutely do because you get powers and abilities as a result. But finishing the game, it just starts you back where you last saved before fighting Ganondorf. And you don't get anything special other than maybe a check mark next to your save file. So why would I want to waste my time doing that? So I've put the game down for now. And the new Harvest... Well, I say Harvest Moon. The new Story of Seasons game... It's so stupid that they changed the name. And I know why they changed the name, but it's still stupid. Um, the thing is, is that the remake that's coming out 
is of a Harvest Moon game called A Wonderful Life, which was a game that I absolutely loved on the GameCube, and I also bought it for PlayStation 2, but the PlayStation 2 version sucked. My concern with the remake is, for one thing, I know I'll be bored of it in a week or two, if even, you know, especially with my attention span lately. And I have to focus on my schoolwork, which, you know, I've been doing what I can with my bandwidth, my mental bandwidth. So I am progressing and I have almost finished the first part of the course. And there are two main parts. So I have in about a month's time of a six-month course finished what usually takes students three to four months to get through. Now, part of the reason why I finished it so quickly is that there's not much work involved other than lots of slideshows from a very bad instructor. And I can say he's a bad instructor because I've studied pedagogy and I know what works and what doesn't work and what he's doing doesn't work. On top of that, there's a textbook, and I've been reading from the textbook. I understand a lot of it. The issue is retaining the information because the thing about science is it's it's something that you learn more if you're actually using it, but if you're just studying it out of a book, you're not going to retain that information. That's my main gripe with science education, especially in high schools. You throw a lot of information at someone, you expect them to be tested on this information, and at the end of the semester, what, are they, what have they really learned? Last week, I mentioned that I'm thinking about writing more for the podcast and kind of as a way to get my writing out there without having to go through the publication process and marketing and whatnot, because I have an audience with the podcast. I have people who listen to what I write on the podcast. No one on this po- who's listening to this podcast can dislike me or dislike what I write because that's just so baked into what this podcast is. So if it were, I, I could see someone listening because they like hearing me read David Sedaris or whatever. Sure. But at the same time, this is my podcast. I'm the only voice on here. So it, it would be weird if you hate listened to me. But I have ideas for new projects. And like all good ideas, they need to stew in my head for a while. But they're about ready to come out because I'm getting anxious to write and create again. And I'm also thinking about writing and creating music more because I usually put out multiple albums a year, which I've already done this thus far. I've put out two albums of new material this year and one compilation uh, called 2015, which has mostly stuff that wasn't released before. But I, I haven't written any short stories this year. I wrote a poem the other day for the first time in about three months. So my creative process is very much like a train. Once I get ramped up and going, I go for a while. But once I'm stopped, I'm going to be sitting in that train yard for a long time. And I guess I want to brainstorm aloud before we start talking about Batman and whatnot. So, for one thing, I love the world that I created with Demise of the Trinity. And several of you out there love it as well. And you would, you probably wouldn't balk at me writing more about those characters. But you see, I have this flaw where I measure myself by the success of others. I think we all do. But, you know, the thing that I say to myself is I have written basically a series of books that isn't a series of books because the I don't even want to get into that. I hate calling it a book series, but it's several books books that are in the same continuity but you know you can read them out of order if you want that's the way I wrote them sort of like how all of Stephen King's books are in the same universe but you wouldn't call them all a series but 
many of them relate to one another. And that's what I was going for. More so with Brett Easton Ellis, because most of his books are in the same universe. His last three novels have been kind of separated from that universe. But I have also inadvertently done something else and created a different universe. <laughs> and it's something that has been divorced from the demise of the, of the Trinity world. And it's supposed to be more based in the real world. So my novel Greenskin, for instance, is part of the same world as some of my short stories because it makes references to that. Uh, and this goes all the way back to my last couple of years writing in college. So the short story Jesse, for instance, is in the same universe as these other works because the novel Fire in the Engine Room has been mentioned in other things that I've I've written. And it's not even a real novel, but it's the novel that is mentioned in that short story. And, you know, I've also connected these two worlds in a very weird way because of the character Steve, Seba Steve Sebastian. So I'm thinking about writing either a novel for the podcast or just a, a continuing series for the podcast that is from Steve Sebastian's perspective. But I also want to write something with characters from the Trinity, Trinity novels like Nero and Birch. But I was really inspired by what the Flash was wanted to do conceptually, but also what it failed to do conceptually. So how cool would it have been to have seen all the Batman together? It would have been cool to have seen Michael Keaton and Batfleck and Christian Bale working together, kind of like uh, the Spider-Man No Way Home situation or whatever the fucking name was. You know, I can't keep up with all of them. And I'm not saying that I'm going to be bringing in Birch and Wayne from Greenskin and this character from this story. No, I've already already have an established canon within the Demise series to where I don't have to do that. But it would be cool to see Birch and Nero team up again, wouldn't it? It would make more sense to do so as a trinity. So I would need a third character for that. And it can't be Rosa. It can't be Ken Price because I established in the Ken 2015 podcast episode that he's dead. And he died in Demise of the Trinity. He's not coming back. I'm not bringing back dead characters. But one thing that is working against me with this whole idea is the novel Birch. So the novel Birch, if you're not familiar, you can go listen to this, the multiple episodes of the podcast that I did where I discussed it. But it was very different from my first three novels, but all of my novels are different from one another, to be fair. But it was inspired by Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. That was a big thing. It wasn't really inspired as much by all the multiverse stuff that you see but it may seem that way because there is time travel involved or is there that's the thing there's so many questions left with that novel and my fear is that if I bring Birch back for another adventure that I will be destroying the mystery that I created with the novel Birch but at the same time you know, I'm creative enough to bring him back without answering those questions. And I know how to do it, but at the same time, should I do it? And who would the third person be in the scenario? Well, I would have to write someone new, wouldn't I? Because there is the unanswered question of what happens to the Trinity when Birch leaves the world and Nero is left by himself during the events of Nero 2140, uh, which I released as a series on the podcast, and you can read all of the Nero stories 
in Staring at Nirvana, my novella collection, which came out last month, I think. Speaking of releases, I did a free giveaway for Greenskin this weekend, but I didn't announce it. I just wanted to see what would happen because I have stepped away from promoting on Reddit for now. I may go back. I don't know what's going on with Reddit right now, but I know that being away from Reddit on the app at least has been very beneficial for me. Um, The only thing is that when I'm in a situation where I have nothing to do but look at my phone, I keep looking at my other apps and Facebook is boring. Instagram, too many boobies to look out in, in public. Same for TikTok, really. So I don't have a browsing app to fill that void. You know, when you're just waiting in your car somewhere or you're in a waiting room. Stuff like that. In public, basically. But if you're curious, I sold three copies of Greenskin without an announcement. Because that's the way that goes. And it's basically pushing a tree over in the woods with no one around. I understand that. But if I had announced it on... Reddit, I would have gotten maybe 50 or 100 downloads, which is better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. I would love that. But I would also love it if people actually read the damn book. And plenty of people have so far, but the thing about promotion is that you get in this vicious cycle with other authors, the indie writing community, which is a myth, And it goes back to all the complaints that Zev Good has had about it and all the complaints that I've had about it, which is that it's all a facade. There's no real support there. But when you really think about it, and which is a a cliched phrase, none of these people really owe us anything. They may say that they'll support us and they don't follow through on the world, but my God, that's most of the world, is it not? People say they're going to do things and then they don't. And that's just kind of part of the social contract that we have where everyone is lying to one another. Because we don't owe each other the truth. I don't owe you the truth. I am honest to a fault a lot of the time. And a lot of times what I want to tell people is that they don't have to be honest with the rest of the world. But it's not nice to lie about saying you're going to do something and then not do it, obviously. It's rude. But again, all of the politeness and kindness and toxic positivity, it's all a farce. I've started getting trolls on my TikTok channel, which, you know, I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. The the thing is, is that it's usually in the comments and it's usually, you know, a, a 14 or 15 year old boy who doesn't have his real photo or has some sort of obscured photo of himself. And he's got the dumb hair and the dumb expression because that's what these fuckers do these days. I know having lived through the 2000s and 2010s, how much Gen X and baby boomers love to shit talk millennials so i'm not going to fall in the trap and saying oh it's gen z and gen alpha this that and the other kids in general are fucking stupid it doesn't matter what generation they are and you get into your 20s and you think you know everything which is also stupid so i'm not really offended when a 15 year old boy tells me you suck at guitar even though the video is of random 3ds photos that i took that people like for the sake of content i wouldn't do it if people didn't like it and give me views and listen to my music as a result of that which doesn't seem to compute with the trolls what people don't know about me if they're 15 years old and they've barely left their house in the past three years because of a pandemic is that I've heard everything on the internet 
when it when it comes to being trolled, I have been I've had my life threatened. It's not a big deal. But I see a lot of toxic toxic uh, behavior on the app and social media in general that uh, there's pushback on. But the thing is, is that when you acknowledge the troll, it gives them what they were after. So, for instance, there was that girl. Well, I say girl. It was a woman. She's a full-grown woman. I think she's older than me. Who basically became famous on TikTok because people called her ugly and she responded to their comments by saying, Oh, I know I'm ugly. I know I'm going to be alone forever and I'm fine with that. And she got just so much support from that. And when in reality, she's not ugly. She's never been ugly. I mean, I'm sure when she was growing up and she was awkward like the rest of us, she got bullied in junior high and high school like the rest of us. And she just kind of tried to accept it um, rather than saying, none of this matters. And she's a very lovely person. But it's sad to see that going on but also interesting to see the positive phenomenon that arises from it where she essentially gets her validation and fame from responding to trolls but again giving the trolls what they want so then it becomes this vicious world where people are basically creating a platform based on responding to trolls. So they are, it's a mutually beneficial toxic relationship. When I had Twitter, I would just block people. I didn't really engage with trolls. I didn't engage with people if I didn't like them. That was just how it was. And then people thought that was toxic for some reason. I think those people are fucking stupid. I also think that I'm ready to talk about Batman. I wrote kind of experimental post on Facebook. Now that I'm off Twitter, I'm more active on my Facebook account. I have 80 friends, people. I'm so famous. That wasn't the point of kind of turning my attention to a Facebook account that I've had since high school because I wanted to write something in regards to Batman. My wife is now taking a shower at least she's not watching Gossip Girl in the other room. Anyway, I wrote about things that I would change about Batman movies, and I wanted to share them on the podcast. Nobody asked for it, but I'm about to go to sleep and want to do it. Here's everything I'd change about Batman Returns. Number one, get rid of Christopher Walken masquerading as an out-of-place Max Shrek and have Billy D. Williams play a more prominent role as Harvey Dent. Number two... The Penguin isn't abandoned by his parents. Paul Rubens is creepy enough to make it obvious why his son grew up to be antisocial and nasty. Number three, cut the dumb scene with Catwoman doing gymnastics in an alleyway while saving a woman, only to scold her for being dumb enough to walk through a Gotham alleyway at night. That scene is just as campy as anything Joel Schumacher did. By the way, as a side note to that, I don't think that Michelle Pfeiffer was a good Catwoman. I think... Michelle Pfeiffer is a good actress and she had good parts in that role. But overall, I don't think she was a very satisfying Catwoman. I think that one of the things that got misinterpreted in terms of where they should be in their performance is Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is Jack Nicholson. He is versatile, but he's always Jack. So when he's the Joker you have a very specific interpretation of the Joker, but it works because not only is it kind of comic accurate, but he's charming because he's Jack Nicholson. But Michelle Pfeiffer in the early 90s didn't quite have that kind of cultural cachet like Jack Nicholson. And I think that her and other actors in these movies had this notion that, oh, these are comic book movies, so we can out act outlandish hence Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Batman Forever who I like by the way but we'll get into that later anyway 
Number four, more Batman. The dude has less screen time than Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. It's called Batman Returns, not the penguin in Tim Burton's Wet Dream. And by the way, for those of you who don't understand sarcasm or irony, I am well aware that Batman is on screen more than Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. It's a joke. Number five, lose the penguins with bombs. That's dumb. Number six, if Oswald must be connected to Carney's, his parents should have made their fortune on the circus. His retaliation is based on dwindling interest in the circus hurting his parents' bankroll and hiring the dejected carnies for his plot to blackmail Gotham's elite. It makes a little more sense than I'm ugly and hate my parents, so give me your babies. Number seven, Robin's parents worked for the Cobblepots. There's your connection to Batman Forever. Cat, uh, number eight, Catwoman shouldn't team up with the Penguin. The realization that Bruce as Batman should lead her to revealing Harvey Dent tried to kill her. Remember, I've placed Harvey Dent in place of Max Shrek. He'd stop Penguin from killing Harvey, but he wouldn't immediately stop Catwoman due to the conflict of his feelings for her and animosity for Harvey secretly being a murderer. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Catwoman's attack on Harvey before Batman takes him to jail leads to Two-Face being the main antagonist in Forever. Number nine, Penguin also ends up in Arkham, but his carny friends kill him in the raid that leads to Two-Face's escape. Number ten, I like both the Batman 89 comic and Batman Forever. However, having Keaton Williams and Pfeiffer return would have been ideal. Cast Robin Williams as Nigma, but don't introduce the Riddler until the fourth movie. Now, I did this kind of out of order. So what I did was I did... Batman Returns, and then I went straight to Batman and Robin, and I skipped Batman Forever because I had a separate idea for that that was kind of divorced from this continuity that I've come up with in my Batman Returns fan fiction post. In the spirit of my last post that you likely rolled your eyes at, it's 10.06 on Friday night, and my brain is scrambled eggs. This is everything I would change about Batman and Robin. Number one, anyone with a life is likely unaware George Clooney turned down Jack Frost to be in Batman and Robin. Michael Keaton ended up playing the harmonica playing Snowman instead. Val Kilmer didn't want to be Batman again because he thought kids cared more about the car and gadgets than the man behind the mask. No shit, Sherlock. It's a kid's franchise. I like Val as Batman, but Michael Keaton should have swapped places with Clooney. I realized that this was unlikely because Keaton turned down forever, even with the higher salary, because he had integrity, but most of the movies he did prior to Birdman kind of sucked anyway. Give me back Keaton for this hypothetical scenario. Number two, Batman and Robin as it stands could be improved if someone edited out all of the Batman and Robin lines out during the live action sequence, the action sequences. They're terrible. I can live with Arnold's one-liners. They could even dub over Clooney's lines with the same effect Affleck used in Batman v Superman. However, this issue is solved if we have Keaton again. By the way, I have a very basic list for my favorite Batman and Batman movies. I like all of them but George Clooney. Now, the reason why I don't like George Clooney in the role is because... He didn't even bother to mask his voice in any way. You know, Kilmer and Keaton both spoke differently when they were in costume. Kilmer gave a very nuanced performance that a lot of people didn't quite pick up on. They thought he was just kind of filling up space. But he he did a really good job. But uh, Bruce Wayne... George Clooney was perfect for Bruce Wayne, but not Batman, because uh, despite the fact that he has a handsome face and a good chin, uh, he just he wasn't there for the action of it all. He wasn't there for the performance of Batman. He didn't think of Batman as being a darker character. He just basically played George Clooney wearing a Batman costume. Anyway. Number three, get rid of Batgirl, please. I am all about Alicia Silverstone, but Batgirl is poorly conceived to begin with. It's bad enough that we have a whiny Robin. I don't like Batgirl. I don't like Batwoman, for God's sakes. 
can we please just come up with new characters instead of just reinventing the same fucking IP with a different race or gender? For God's sakes. It would be cool to have a black Batman. It would be cool to have uh, a different race Spider-Man because we have Miles Morales. But Miles Morales is not just the same character as Peter Parker, is he? No, he's a different person altogether. That's the thing. You could have another Batman, but you wouldn't be replacing Bruce Wayne. With the idea of Batgirl or Batwoman, it's just really fucking lazy. Mind you, I think that my favorite Robin in all of the comics has got to be Carrie Kelly from Dark Knight Returns. So, I'm not against gender swapping a role, but doing it with just, instead of having Batman have Batgirl, etc., it's lazy. And realistically we need new ips and characters rather than just say let's take what's existing and change it for the sake of changing it to make it more appealing to a certain audience that's lazy number four get rid of bane he deserved his own spotlight as a villain poison ivy doesn't need a muscle man she can kick ass on her own if anyone could play a villain that can handle herself physically it's uma thurman she killed bill y'all she doesn't need Bane. Number five, having Poison Ivy want to jump Mr. Freeze's bones is so dumb and poor writing. Much like Penguin and Catwoman, they'd make better adversaries. So here's your new conflict. Ivy wants to spread her toxic plants around Gotham. Freeze is impervious to her charms, but also her poison. And he can freeze her plants. Ivy uses Batman and Robin to confront Mr. Freeze. Once he's out of the picture, she's the true main antagonist. Number six, Alfred dying is unnecessary. Number seven, replace Akiva Goldsman as a screenwriter. He's not a bad writer, but everyone wants to blame Joel Schumacher or the producers for this mess. You can find the first draft of this movie online, and it stinks. Why does it stink? Because it's basically the same movie, only with Nightwing instead of Robin. There's a long-standing myth that Patrick Stewart was supposed to be Mr. Freeze and Akiva wrote Shakespearean lines for him. Nope, all the ice puns are still there. Hire Bruce Timm instead. Number eight, no bat nipples. Number nine, bring back the old Batmobile. Number ten, stop with Bruce Wayne and turtlenecks. All right, so I did a totally separate thing for Batman Forever. Once again, not a soul asked for this. But here's everything I would change about Batman Forever. I like Val Kilmer and the rest of the cast, so this is going to ignore my suggestions for Batman Returns and Batman and Robin, as that would cause several contradictions. Number one, fire Akiva Goldsman and the other writers. With Jim Carrey changing lines constantly, Robin making weird allusions to Batman 66, and Two-Face having all of the gravitas of a screaming rattler, the screenplay suffers significantly because Joel Schumacher is apparently the only person on set who read a comic book. Number two, more Harvey Dent backstory. Changing actors sort of helped with the loose continuity between Burton's Batman and Schumacher, but the movie's cold open doesn't give us any inclination why Two-Face is a criminal who wants to steal money. Is it mob money? Does he have a coke habit? What's his actual motivation for going crazy, hiring goons, and stealing a bank vault? Apparently, he wants to kill Batman because he didn't stop Salvatore Moroni from disfiguring him. It's weak. I love Tommy Lee Jones' opening monologue and want more contrast and clashing between Harvey and Two-Face. By the way, I'm aware that Kevin Smith talked about having a copy of the supposed Schumacher cut. And from what I understand, it is a fan's edit. But it does have certain things that weren't necessarily available to the public. And one of the scenes was uh, a different reaction from Tommy Lee Jones to the Riddler coming into Two-Face's lair. Um, I think that Tommy Lee Jones is obviously a tremendous actor, I've never had a problem with the way he played Two-Face. And I understand what he was going for. And I think one of the things that he was 
kind of keeping in mind is the character that he wanted to play more of in Natural Born Killers. If you watch Natural Born Killers before you watch Batman Forever, it makes a lot more sense. Anyway. Number three. Riddler's obsession with Bruce Wayne is similarly lackluster. So Nigma should have had a small part in Returns, but his plot to steal brainwaves is too wacky too. And by the way, it's the same thing that Oscar Isaac, not Oscar Isaac, Pedro Pascal's character does in, ba- in Wonder Woman 1984. Make him a real stalker who finds out Bruce Wayne is Batman. His motivation for becoming a villain is closer to is to be cl- gro- closer to Bruce. I can read, I promise. And he keeps the secret from everyone because he needs Bruce and Batman. Number four. It's cool that Two-Face has a thruple, but Debbie Mazar deserved more screen time as Spice. Drew Barrymore got her own scene with Val Kilmer, for God's sakes. Number five. Robin should be younger. Chris O'Donnell was already a grown man who would have been in a movie without who who had been in a movie with Al Pacino. Why would Bruce Wayne take a full grown man into his house because he lost his parents? Again, this is something that Kevin Smith has talked about. Lease that man an apartment if you want to be charitable, Bruce. Even Marlon Wayans was too old. Just cast Macaulay Culkin or some other generic nineties kid. Number six. Alfred should definitely be less dismissive of disc of Dick Grayson too. It's cool that he offers to do his laundry and make sandwiches, but he should be mentoring him just as much as Bruce. Number seven, I don't care what anyone says about Nicole Kidman being a, playing a psychiatrist. A better screenwriter would have made her a better psychiatrist. However, she shouldn't have any interest in Bruce as a love interest and focus solely on him, uh, so focus solely on Batman. That creates tension with Riddler and gives him reason to kidnap her for the third act. Number eight. Two-Face and Riddler should not team up. Riddler should want to get rid of Two-Face since he wants to kill Batman. In the finale, Two-Face will be the one to shoot Riddler in the standoff with Batman, wound Robin as he takes chase for uh, as he takes chase for a human shield, and make his final monologue to Batman before falling into the abyss with all the coins flying everywhere. And no, I've never had an issue with Batman killing Two-Face. Number nine, Riddler survives but keeps Batman's secret in Arkham because he believes he'll get out to begin the game again. Number ten, Chase finds out Bruce is Batman and rejects him because he was her patient and leaves Gotham to avoid more crazy villains kidnapping her. Number 11. Guilty over almost losing Robin to a gunshot, Bruce sends Dick to a college prep school. He can return as Nightwing in the next movie. Number 12. If there must be a sequel with Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane, Bruce needs to see some sort of briefing or news about Wayne Enterprises having a mishap in South America, and Arnold should have a cameo as a scientist somewhere in the film. Maybe he's a consultant with Nygma. By the way, there is a weird coincidental Easter egg in Batman Returns because there's a picture of Christopher Walken with Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman Returns, but they did not cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as... Mr. Freeze, two movie, movies ahead of time. It's been theorized that because Christopher Nolan really wants to direct a Bond movie, that the Batman movies are essentially his versions of Bond. Inception is supposed to be like a Bond movie, etc. I can't write Batman. I could write Batman fan fiction, and I wrote a chapter of fan fiction back in 2019. And this predates my publication of my first novel. It predates Surviving New America when I created Nero, who is kind of like my Batman stand-in in the series. Nero has evolved into his own thing, and he was never really much like Batman to begin with because, for one thing, he wasn't a rich kid with a big bat cave that wore a mask and a cape. No, but... He did try to adhere to a no-kill rule. Uh, he was strictly in it for the sake of fighting crime throughout Atlanta. And he also becomes uh, an okay detective, I think. 
it takes some years to figure things out sometimes, but he'll eventually figure it out. But parts of the fan fiction that I wrote in 2019 kind of inspired portions of Greenskin where Wayne talks about wanting to write Batman and also portions of Nero's character in Surviving New America and the other things that he's been written into. I didn't think that I would be reading anything on today's podcast. I did not anticipate pulling up my chapter that I wrote in 2019. But I think that if it's cringy or if it's embarrassing or if it's good, there can only be a positive result for me reading it on the podcast. So you're getting an exclusive... Actually, it's not that exclusive because it is on fanfiction.net. And I've never hidden the fact that I wrote this, by the way. And I was surprised that anyone liked it when I posted it on on fanfiction. But it's never been finished. This chapter was supposed to be a series of things that I posted to Wattpad. Nobody responded responded to it, so I abandoned it. Anyway. Oswald stares at the fluorescent lights above the bed and growls out each breath. I brush back his thin hair with my bare hand, and I don't think I touched any of the of my antagonist like this. He wasn't an enemy like the Joker. Oswald felt like a victim of circumstance and his grotesque appearance and fortune with no one to share the wealth with. Bruce should have befriended and helped him. The closest he'll ever get to know me is through the mask. Shame, he says. Really a shame. You're my only visitor. What about Selena? <laughs> She's gone, I say. It's been two years, Oswald. Right, he shakes his head. It's all ending so fast. When we're all gone... You can finally stop wearing that rubber suit. I'd like to have a successor, but there's no one I know who could live this way. We're the last of the breed. Gotham's changed for the better. Unfortunately for our kind. His eyes flicker and close, so I turn to the window and look out on the street. Before we lost Arkham... You could see the asylum from across the river. When you stood in one of those cells, Gotham burned like an inferno blazing through a forest. Jack probably thought the fire spread into the water that night. I didn't want to buy it was him until I reviewed the dental records. Barbara wanted to drop his body in the dump. There's a light in the sky, and it must be the moon. I haven't seen the signal in so long. There's got to be a kid playing around on Gotham Police Department's roof. When Barbara buried her father, the new commissioner, Harold Blake, didn't carry on Gordon's system. Blake's not against the Batman, but he believes in his officers and the law. Night, Oswald, I say. Safe passage. Commissioner Blake leans against the rooftop door with his iPhone screen washed out by the bat signal. Without him bothering to see me, I reach around and turn the light off, and he turns his camera light on, trying to find me. Gordon wouldn't be so distracted, I say. You ever think someone other than Batman might show up? You're not even armed. You and I haven't spoken since I found the Joker's body at Arkham, Blake says. I need to talk to you about a couple of things. His name was Jack Napier. Just like your name isn't Batman, huh? I wanted to talk about that. Gordon discovered Bruce Wayne through Barbara. You can't live with a man's daughter without him figuring out why you sleep until one in the afternoon. It wasn't a dramatic moment we shared or a big reveal. He said my birth name one night on this rooftop before winking and walking back inside. If Blake finds out, he may not keep the secret, and he'll probably arrest me. I talked to a lot of people, Blake says. I spoke to Oswald Cobblepot. 
I asked Harvey Dent before he passed. There was a rumor Antonio Diego figured you out, but he's in a Mexican mental health facility. No one in these walls claims they know you. Either you're good at hiding it, or they're lying to protect you. You've done a lot to help, so I'm not saying you're a menace, but you're breaking the law every time you leave wherever you come from dressed like that. Got any cuffs, Blake? I'm not going to arrest you. And I just had some expensive dental work done. I can't fight you even with a shotgun and a SWAT team. I got something else to talk about, though. Just thought I'd give you the courtesy of saying. I'm investigating Batman. With your rogue gallery dying out, you're almost Gotham's most wanted. What else you got? A little bit of your expertise since you're not a fortune teller, but there's a lot of mass shootings going on these days. Stuff Batman can't stop. Blake's poking me, and I'm ready to toss him off the roof. There are a lot of misconceptions about my code. Jack held it over my head all the time. Batman never kills. As a young man donning the cowl, I thought of myself as a vigilante working to better mankind. America never won a war by professing peace, though. Allowing a virus to survive means it spreads, so I'm not going to hurt Blake, but I'd like to show him how to respect me. I'm a symbol. He's a gargoyle behind a desk. You're talking about West End High, I ask. Cody Harper. Not just Harper, Blake says. Anthony Strauss held up the jewelry outlet in the mall. Did he try to take anything valuable? He made a couple of he made a couple take off their clothes and shot the woman in the shoulders and legs while her husband watched. Then he made her watch him blow the man's head off. Then he took a pill. All before we could show up, mind you. How'd Harper do it, I ask. Same pill. We ran a toxicology report during the biopsy. Problem was, we couldn't find the pill because they only had one each. Cyanide? If it were cyanide, would I need the bat signal? The latest was Brian Winston at the First Methodist. A lot of these churches have security no one knows about. Winston sure as hell didn't because he only managed to gun down two people before he got one in the back. He turns his phone around to reveal a red pill with Ace inscribed in the middle. Ace Chemicals haven't been in business since the incident with Jack, though. Gordon ran a sweep to ensure nothing got left behind. Someone made that in a home lab or in a Winnebago so that someone supplies these kids their one red pill. What'd you find in their cell phones? I ask. Chat logs through an app called Vamp. One of those fringe things. It's all anonymous and we got a warrant for the IPs, but whoever's talking to the kids is using more than one phone. One number we trace back to an old lady named Louisa Metropolis. So they're spoofing. You try posing as a kid? I ask. Yeah, but all we got were perverts. Can I run some tests on the pill? It's locked away in an undisclosed location and not in the building. We already ran tests. You think we're a crackerjack operation? Calling me up here to prove these a better detective serves as only a waste of time. I'd rather be home watching TV and falling asleep, but Blake's bored and wants to play with Batman. He doesn't realize I'm the same man who tied up Edward Nigma and cut chunks out of a scrotum. Nigma really needed his cane to get around after that. It dissolves in saliva instantly, burns through the roof of the mouths like acid and straight to the brain. The first two died within seconds. Labs said it was a combination of nitrate that venom stuff Diego used in his mask. Last person I know who touched venom was Jonathan Crane. He jumped off the Miller Bridge and drowned. Gordon called me in to identify the body, so I know he's gone. Surely Diego's too weak to even try venom again. If you want me to do anything about this, I say, I'm not going to get anywhere on this rooftop. I'll let you know. Just so you're aware. If I found out who you really are before you finish this, I'm going to seek a warrant for your arrest.
Commissioner. If you find out who I am, pray no one else does. The drive back to the cave is the next best thing to a hot bath and clean sheets, but pulling inside without Alfred or Dick waiting makes me regret every year I spent in this costume. I didn't have to stay in Gotham. Wayne Enterprises didn't need Gotham either. When Barbara waits for me in her wheelchair, I see that what Jack did to her, all because of Batman. If there wasn't a Batman, there wouldn't be a Joker. Jack reacts to my presence like all the others. Before him, I was punching mafia thugs and guys in hockey masks. Taking the suit off, I'm left sweaty and naked staring at my 67-year-old skin in the mirror. Why'd Alfred install this right next to the armor gallery? Looking at that metal soup doesn't help either. If Clark were here, he'd break through it like tinfoil and flick my skull with his index finger to end it all. I'm amazed at my audacity, even in my fifties. Will I embarrass myself under the grave? Barbara's not in the study, so she's probably in bed. After a shower, I'll probably pass out too. But what about that vamp app? She has an iOS simulator on her PC where we could download the app and pose as a Marilyn Manson fanboy. None of the shooters match that stereotypical description, though. From what I saw on the Daily Planet site, they were average, if not a little nerdy. Perhaps the app itself is the issue. Why sleep when the only thing I've got done tonight was plot the death of the new police commissioner? The app has a cheesy design with vampire teeth as a logo and red text over a black background. Unlike most apps that scroll, this UI has one page with selections for messages, profiles, and settings. With each a bare bones with such a bare bones design, I'm surprised people my age aren't using this. Anyway, I'm not going to read anymore. There's just a little bit left, a little interaction between him and Barbara. But if you listened to, or if you read the latest Nero series that began with. 2140 you know that I kind of transformed this plot this idea of someone using children as mass shooters or just school shooters in general and then killing them afterwards I wish that I could poll listeners I, I can on Spotify but I know that like two people would respond if even but for episode 200 I have you know, several ideas, but one of the ideas is something that I feel like some people would really like and other people would really cringe at, or they'd just stop listening. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about revisiting demise of the Trinity because, uh, and I know I've done that before. I did an episode for that and, uh, price of the Trinity. But the thing is, is that, when I read Surviving New America, when I read Birch, when I read Greenskin and Charles Price on here, I read them without skipping a lot. I read them in earnest. I did, you know, stop, talk about certain parts, analyze them. But when I did Demise of the, of the Trinity early on, I hadn't really established the true kind of format of the podcast and what I really enjoy doing when I read work on here. So the, it's not really a true, like, okay, you could start with the first episode and then listen to the next episode and get a gist of what happens chronologically in the book and whatnot, because I was doing it to promote the novel and I didn't want to spoil a lot, but now the book has been out for, you know, three years now. I don't want to alienate listeners, but I've gotten better at this for one thing, and I am very proud of that novel. I've talked about it at length on the podcast, but I haven't given it the same treatment that I did the other books. So I'm thinking at episode 200, maybe I start a new series on that and then just you know, do four or five episodes, maybe more on it, and then go back to a regular scheduled programming where I read other authors. But, you know, at this point, I don't even know what I'm reading next week, you know? <laughs> so um, maybe I could do it as like a countdown. Since this is episode 193, I could start doing it next week 
for episode 194 and then stop once we get to episode 200. But it, I don't know that that really celebrates the the longevity of this podcast, but who knows? I'm at a place where I could literally do anything I want on this podcast. I don't have to answer anybody, but I do want to make sure that I'm making content that you enjoy listening to. And I don't know if this episode was something that you enjoyed, but it was different. You know, I've never read fan fiction that I've written on the podcast before. And that's something else I could do. What a lot of people don't realize is that conceptually, the idea from the Trinity came from Grand Theft Auto fan fiction that I wrote when I was in high school. And when I started writing this novel, it didn't start out as Demise of the Trinity. It was just a series of short stories that were connected to one another. And I didn't even put the Trinity in until maybe a year into writing it. And I think it's important as a writing podcast to talk about the drafting process and how things change, how you shouldn't think that if your first draft sucks, that you're not going to be able to make it into something better. And we all know that the first draft is supposed to, you know, be the diamond and the rough. But at the same time, things can change, especially if you spend almost a decade writing them. I think I have read one of the earlier drafts of one of the chapters, I think Veronica's chapter on here. But aside from that, um, I, I have a lot of different ideas about writing stuff for the, the podcast and also revisiting stuff like Demise and Surviving New America because Surviving New America is technically two books in one and I only covered the first one a little bit. What you got to understand is this is all I have as an author. Like When I'm dead, this podcast is going to be what's there for people to discover because I don't have a huge social media page. I don't have a huge social media following. I don't have people writing me and saying, Hey, when's the next book going to come out? I don't have that kind of fan base. So this is my legacy that I'm working on here. Anyway, I really appreciate you all listening. I'm sorry if I seemed grouchy in this episode and in some recent episodes, I was really pissy throughout Greenskin. Boy, oh boy. And I I think Greenskin's probably my best novel. It's definitely my favorite. It has my favorite character in it, Summer. But I was just really in a bad mood because of everything going on in my life. And the fact that... <laughs> I don't even know if I should talk about that on here, but I've alluded to it on here. Because I don't want to give someone the satisfaction and I don't think that that person deserves positive or negative attention because they're not worth it and they're essentially worthless. So anyway, this has been Patrick Adderley with Demise Podcast. Happy New Year. No one.